it's good to see you all this morning. Um, we have some old friends and some new friends, um, and we're blessed to have you here with us. Certainly, we have um, a dear friend, Brian Aguiar. Fifteen years ago, I received a phone call from him asking while I was practicing medicine if I still had any interest in serving as a pastor somewhere. And so the fruit that we see here is Brian, God's good work in your life. And uh, certainly you should get to know Brian. He has a very encouraging testimony. And um, also we have some new people here. We have Matt and Josephine, not the old Matt and Josephine, but the new Matt and Josephine along with their parents. And uh, it's sweet to see you and, and be here with you this morning. Uh, Nathaniel and Aaron, they have set the bar high. Married last night, celebrating it in and out, and then First Fruit Sunday. So um, anyways, no pressure. But anyways, it's a blessing to have you here with us this morning. Well, if you're visiting with us, we are walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we are walking through um, his instruction and his teaching to his disciples about how they're to pray, which sounds simple, but as we walk through it, we see how desperately we need to learn from Jesus how to pray. Because for Jesus, prayer is something more than just giving a list of do's and don'ts and a list of requests as if we're going to the post office, submitting a letter. It really is about a participation in the life and love of God. It's about a communion and a fellowship. And that's what sets Jesus' prayer and the prayer of his disciples apart from the prayers of this world and all its false religions. So, um, AV team, do we have my first slide? Thank you so much. Well, I want to take you forward a little bit to the Apostle Paul's epistle to the saints who are in Ephesus. And in that letter, he writes in Ephesians 1.3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he goes on in verse 4 to say, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He's talking about believers. He's talking about a church. He's talking about a fairly young church, by our standards perhaps. And it's with these words the Apostle Paul is summarizing the good news of Jesus Christ, and essentially he's summarizing the Sermon on the Mount. That the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ saves sinners. And he does so through the life and work of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And this salvation that he gives is not simply a ticket to heaven. It is an adoption into a new family and into a new life, the family and life of a beloved child of God. And this is what the Lord's Prayer is about. It's about a relationship with God. It's about a new life that is different from our old life, and it's expressed in the way we talk to God, and by extension, it's expressed in the way that we talk to one another as well. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about the blessings and the responsibilities of this new life and this new family and this new kingdom of God. Do we belong to God? Are we Christians? Then allegedly we belong to his kingdom. And it comes with incredible joy and incredible blessings, but it also comes with responsibilities and expectations. And those responsibilities and expectations and the blessings are different from the blessings and expectations of this world. Thank God for that. And we see that Jesus, as the Messiah and the Son of God, is bringing his disciples here and now out of this fallen world, and he's bringing them into his kingdom. And it's a journey. And as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, we see that this is what he's showing them. He's showing them the journey. He's showing them the blessings and responsibilities of this journey. And in Matthew 5, 3, this new life begins with God's blessing of the poor in spirit and God's blessing of those who mourn over sin. Heartbroken 
And then in Matthew 7, it leads to God's children entering through the narrow gate of the kingdom of heaven, entering with Jesus as their king. And this and everything in between, chapters 5 and chapters 7, is the righteous life and journey of faith that God gives graciously, but he also requires of all his children in Christ. And so that raises the question, are you a child of God? Well, if so, this is the journey you're on. And if so, this is what your life should increasingly look like by the power of God's word and God's spirit. And as we come to Matthew 6, right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows his disciples if we are indeed his disciples, if we're following him, and if indeed we are children of God, then prayer will be an intentional and foundational and regular part of our new lives in God's family and in his kingdom. And his command as Lord and King is that his disciples live and they love and they pray not like the world, but they do so as their as beloved children of God. And this is really the big truth for this morning. And it points to what the Lord's Prayer is really all about. It's Christ's instruction and command about how his disciples are to rightly live, how they are to rightly love, and how they are rightly to pray as beloved children of God. And our aim this morning for our church family is that we would learn from Jesus and that we will grow in living and loving and praying, not as the world does, but as beloved children of God. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read Jesus' commands and instructions on prayer, reading from verses 5 through 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, you have received, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These are the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, since the low-hanging fruit of Matt and Josephine are here, and I've soaked and squeezed that as an illustration, ad nauseum probably to you this past year, I'll take one last stab at it. But let me ask you a question, church family. For newlyweds, how easy is it to learn how to live and communicate with a new significant other? Hard or easy? Easy. <laughs> well, that says it all, right? I would venture to say that it is an incredible joy as you come together. But I would say for many, during those first few years, it can be at times uncomfortable. It can be at times difficult. But it is a necessary process to learn how to communicate and how to live with and how to love your significant other. And that's with someone who's more or less on an equal playing field with you. And in Matthew 5 through 6, what Jesus is showing as Messiah and the Son of God to his disciples is that they have a new significant other in their life. They have God as their heavenly Father and they have Jesus as their King. And they need to learn how to live and how to love 
and how to pray in this new kingdom in relationship with their new significant others. Christ is king and God is their father because this is the life and this is the relationship that Jesus is bringing them into and the life and kingdom he's bringing them out of is the kingdom of the world. All our old cultural customs, all our old traditions, all the old way we think. And he's showing it needs to be abrupt and it needs to be different. Matt, if you keep on living like you're living at Ringwood with Josephine, we've got trouble. Right? Gone. Josephine, if you continue to live like you're living at home with your sisters, we got trouble, right? And there's a curve and there's a process that's there and it's a joy and it's a thrill and it's a blessing that we get to learn this, but it still is challenging, but it's also necessary. It is a must. And for children of God, they need to learn how to love their Heavenly Father. They need to know how to live with Him and they need to know how to communicate properly with them, how to speak to him. Because how we speak, brothers and sisters, reflects what's in our heart and what our priorities are and what we care about the most. And this, brothers and sisters, is what the Lord's Prayer is all about. And it brings us to our first point this morning. The life and prayer of God's children begins with the Father's love in Christ. The life and prayer of God's children begins with the Father's love in Christ. I'm putting before you that I, I really believe that the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus puts this model prayer before us, is not just a prayer, but it's a demonstration about what our love and life is to be, and it follows a series of priorities. What are the priorities, beginning with the most important priority? And the most important priority in a relationship is the love in that relationship, and this is where Jesus starts. So we think about most prayers that we've experienced and that we hear, most of them begin with a burden or a need or an obligation. This is what presses people to come to pray. And if there's no burden and if there's no need and there's no obligation, how often do we pray? And if we don't pray, what does that say about our relationship? But in verse 9, Jesus introduces and begins the Lord's Prayer not with an explicit, hey, Lord, I need this, or I need a new job, or I need a new spouse, or I need whatever. He begins it, interestingly, with what? He begins it with a command. Verse 9, pray then like this. He begins with a present imperative, a non-optional always command. And he's addressing this command to all of his disciples. It's not a need. It's not an obligation. It's a must. And most of us have a hard time associating commands and people telling us what to do with love. But that's because we're ignorant of what the Father's love is and how he loves. In Christ's kingdom and in God's family, prayer is not a burden. It is not a need. It is not an obligation. It's not like piano lessons or it's our homework. It is a must. Why? Because in Christ's kingdom and in God's family, prayer is holy communion with our Heavenly Father. It's time spent with Him. It's a participation in His holy life and His holy love. And God's life and love are never, ever, ever separate from His authority and His command and who He is. Because He is God and we are not. And the moment we step away from Christ's authority and his command, like Adam and Eve in the garden, we're step away from what? God's life and his love. It's as simple as that. When we fail to honor who God is in this relationship, when we fail to respect his infinite greatness and his infinite goodness, when we fail to appreciate and honor and see that as the foundation of this very relationship we have. And when we fail to treasure that, what we're doing like Adam and Eve is we're walking away from his love. And so here Jesus' command is not simply pray, and it's not simply even pray these words. 
Many people pray and many people pray these words and they have absolutely no relationship with God. Christ's command is, pray then like this. And the literal Greek translation is, in this way, therefore pray. You yourselves, in this way, therefore pray. And the Lord's Prayer is Christ's command about the way or how that his disciples are to habitually pray on a regular basis. And simply put, they are always to pray as beloved children of God. And what follows shows us how beloved children of God pray and how, how do they pray and how do we know this? How do we know that Jesus is going for this place of, listen, it begins with your Father's love. Do you appreciate your Father's love? It's that little word, therefore. That little word, therefore, points us back to everything that Jesus has said before. He's pointing to the reason they are to pray this way. And what's the reason that they are to pray this way? Verses 5 through 8. You must not be like the hypocrites. Pray to your Father who is in secret. Do not be like them, the Gentiles, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In this way, therefore, you must pray. And so Jesus is pointing out the reason disciples must pray in the way he's instructing them and what follows is because with Jesus, his father is now their father. And unlike all the imperfect and fallen fathers of this world, Jesus' father loves his children perfectly. Not with the world self-love and the world self-serving and self-absorbed love. He loves his children with a holy love, a sacrificial love, a self-giving love. He is a father who is always present. He is a father who always watches and sees his children, no matter where they are, whether they're in secret or they're visible and out in the open. He is a father who perfectly knows his children and he knows what they need even before they ask. Dads, we've got a long way to go, don't we? In loving our children in the way the father loves us but we can do so with his help when my boys were young i used to always tell them wherever we would go and travel i'd say wherever you go just make sure you're within eyeshot distance of me that i can see you and if you need to go further just ask i'm limited as a father but the priority during those times to love and care for my boys am i trying to control them no i want to make sure that they're protected and they're taken care of. I want to make sure that they're wherever I can see them. And Jesus shows us that that's just a broken, broken reflection of the love of our Heavenly Father, but also His infinite power to match His infinite love, that He is aware wherever we are and whatever we're doing, the condition of our heart, the way of our walk, our safety and our protection. And Jesus is pointing out, if you have such a father, why are you praying like the world? This is the way you need to pray. Why? Because your prayer is an expression of your father's perfect love for you. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? eternal life. And so we see this is where the gospel begins. This is where salvation begins. And this is where the disciple's life and prayer begins. And this is where the prayer of the beloved child of God is to begin. Why? Because as beloved children of God, our greatest need is for our Father's love. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. Beloved children, know and cherish their beloved Father and His holiness. Beloved children, know and cherish their beloved Father and His holiness. Brothers and sisters, how we pray speaks volumes about our relationships. First and foremost, our relationship with God. How we speak to one another speaks volumes about our relationships. Matt and Josephine, you know I've said this, right? And told you. And it's something that applies to all of us. How we speak about our spouses and how we speak to them tells the world about what's going on in our hearts and where that person fits in our lives. 
And sadly, for all of us, some days it's good, and some days it ain't. As a child, every evening I used to wait and watch for my father to arrive home for work. I knew the time that he was going to come. We'll go to the window and look out. And then when he would come home, I would ask him how his day was. And that was sort of a cue probably in a segue for me to go on ad nauseum about how my day was. Right? And why would I do this? I was blessed to have a father who cherished and loved me. And I knew it. And in response, I delighted in spending time with him. And we see for Jesus, life without prayer was and is inconceivable. Why? Because his father loved him and he cherished and loved his father but he also cherished and loved this exclusive relationship between a father and a child. And that's what it's supposed to be. I know that's not what it always is. And we can't look at our own lives and our peers. We need to look to heaven to see what it was supposed to be. As you go through the scriptures, this relationship, father, son, father, child, is a relationship that declares a unique identity, a unique role, a unique likeness, but a unique relationship, an exclusive relationship, a relationship that is holy, exclusive. That's another way of saying holy. It's set apart. It's not like all the other relationships that we have. In a similar fashion, a relationship between a husband and wife should be exclusive. It should be holy. It needs to be set apart. And in a church, the relationship between brothers and sisters. It should be holy. It should be set apart. Why? Because that is the love and relationship of our Heavenly Father. It is holy. It is set apart. It is exclusive. And when Jesus says, pray then, like this, in verse 9, what follows is a model prayer that teaches us how to be in an exclusive relationship with our Heavenly Father how to be in a relationship that is holy and set apart from all the trash in this world. And goodness knows, brothers and sisters, that's something we need to learn. I learned, sadly, early, in one of my early dating relationships, that to be speaking to a young lady while the TV on, was on was not a good thing. Right? What are you looking at? The hockey score. This is back in Canada, right? You know, it's like, ooh, what does that communicate and say to this person about the priority of this relationship and where they fit in? Obviously, I didn't marry that young lady, so hockey scores were more important, right? Sad but true. And we look at the little things in our relationships, eye contact that we make, how we refer, the tone of our voice, the facial expressions that are there, and Matt and Josephine, you're going to see early in the relationship when you're there 24-7 in comparison to before, before all of those little things seem to affect you in the beginning. How someone looks, the brightness of their face, what's going on, worries, all of those things in ways that before were not really an issue. And so it's worthwhile to see that where Jesus starts when he says pray then in this way is he starts with a confession. It's a confession of who God is, our Father who is in heaven. And in Scripture, Father is a title of great love and honor and authority. And it sets apart who this person is, that he is the one who has given me life. He is the one with whom I have an exclusive relationship. He is the one who gives me my identity, my role, and responsibility. He is the one who protects and leads me. And our Father, as we've noted before and other scholars have noted, it is a declaration of God's truth and love. It is a summation of the gospel that because of Jesus, the disciples are now united together with Jesus in a new life. Because of Jesus, they are able to know and love and honor God in an exclusive relationship as their Father. And this, brothers and sisters, is the foundation of everything that follows 
because it's the foundation of their entire relationship with Jesus Christ, and it determines their relationship with every other person in their life and with the world. And this title, The One Who Was in Heaven, it's a confession and declaration of God's holiness. Set apart, special. It is a reference to God's rightful place of authority and rule. He may be the disciples' father, but he is infinitely above them and over them. His ways are higher than their ways. His, his foolishness is wisdom to them. They cannot fully understand or comprehend, nor should they. They just need to know that he loves them perfectly. He is not our peer. He is not our equal. He is separate and he is holy, and yet he has found a way through his Son to be one with us. And Jesus is teaching his disciples foundational to their new life and their new prayer is knowing and cherishing their new father for who he is. What he has done for them in Christ. Brothers and sisters, how we speak to someone reflects what we think of them. And Jesus is commanding his disciples that they speak to God with a heart both of love and respect that cherishes his holiness, who he is and what he has done. When we come to the Lord in prayer, brothers and sisters, do we cherish who God is and what he has done for us? Is that the starting place? Our temptation is to come with our list of burdens and needs, and God does indeed care for them. He already knows them. But sometimes, brothers and sisters, we lose the wonder of who it is we're spending time with when our focus primarily is us and our needs rather than the wonder and beauty and love of the God whose presence we are in and we miss out. We miss out in the encouragement and strength that comes with that and the confidence and hope. Then as we get to our needs after, you see we have it reversed. When we get to it after, we begin to see how he has provided for us and the hope that we have in the midst of those trials and in the midst of those troubles. On the flip side of that, we've all been in those conversations with people who go on and on and on about themselves, their lives, their things, their wants, their worries, their problems. And at the end of that conversation, you scratch your head and just say, okay, what am I doing here? They could have been talking to the wall. It would have made absolutely no difference. Jesus is showing his disciples what makes the prayer of a beloved child of God special is a relationship that is special with a person who is special. Our Father, the one who is in heaven, the one who is holy. And when we begin to know and cherish this, the burden of our hearts changes. Hallowed be thy name. Now in God's word in scripture, a person's name represents all that they are, all that they own, their reputation in the community, their whole history and their whole life. And in the Old Testament, God gave his people a command, the third command, not to take the Lord's name in vain. And we've sort of reduced that in our culture to not cussing and not using either Jesus or, or God's name in a way that it's not supposed to. But that's not the full import of that command. The idea is that the children of Israel have been loved and saved by God. He had taken them. And they now belonged to him. They now had his name. They were God's children. They belonged to him. So whatever they said and did reflected on that relationship with the holy God who had called them into a holy and exclusive relationship. And it reflected who this God is. And when they lived lives that were contrary to God's command, when they lived worldly lives, when their lives were filled with the gods of this world, what they were doing is they were taking the name of the Lord, I belong to him, in vain. They were trashing his name. And then later in the prophets, he would liken it 
to say, Israel, you've been unfaithful to me. You're acting like an adulterous woman. In other words, you're married to me and you've taken my name, but you're going out with all these other people. What are you doing? You're trashing my holiness. You're trashing my name. And the lives that you live are a reflection of your sin, not my love for you and my holiness, because my love for you is holy and pure. So brothers and sisters, we look at our lives today as we come forward. We take the name Christian. What does it mean? For many people, it means nothing because we look no different from the world. But the idea is when we take our Savior's name, we belong to him. He purchased us with a price. He gave his life and died on the cross to forgive our sins so that we would no longer belong to what we used to belong to, but we would belong to him. And our true father and ultimate father is his heavenly father. And the lives that we live in our places of work, outside of the church, the people we speak to or we interact with, that reflects... On him. Is his name holy in our lives? I used to be embarrassed to say that I was a Christian in my place of work as a physician. And it was in part because there were other people when I got there who said that they were Christians and said so very loudly and the lives that they were leading was anything but Christian. And it used to be the joke among the physicians I worked with. This guy says he's a Christian, blah, 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 blah. I was like, want to crawl under a, a carpet somewhere. And so we see when we love and cherish God and we love his love, that his love for us is different from the world and it's pure. And we love spending time with him. Our burden is to protect that relationship and not let anything come into that relationship that's going to damage that relationship and that love. We cherish his holiness, what is special about him. And the prayer and the burden of our lives is that nothing in our life would bring shame on the name of the Lord, but instead would exemplify and share with others the goodness of that love. And yet we know that we, in and of ourselves, we can't do that. We're imperfect, we're children, we're sinful. And so this is why one of the first petitions of this prayer in the top priority is hallowed be thy name. Looking to the Lord to set apart his name as holy in our hearts and lives. And then when you go to 1 Peter, when the church is being persecuted in 1 and 2 Peter, getting pounded, how does he strengthen and exhort them? Set apart Christ as what? Holy in your hearts. Look back. Remember who Jesus is. Remember how he has loved you. Set him apart as special. Because if you don't set him apart as special for who he truly is, he becomes cheap and your life becomes cheap. And we see that as an extension. How do you treat your brothers and sisters? If they are not special to you, you will not treat them well. And as we come to Christ, the reason we treat our brothers and sisters as special because God has loved them, he has saved them, and he has brought them into our lives. And this is what gives us the power to love the least among us. Not because they do anything special for me, not because they've got important jobs, not because they're big and successful and they can do a whole lot for the church, they may be able to, because of special needs, be able to do absolutely nothing for the church. But I love them because they're created in the image of God. God has called them and saved them. And if they're special to God, they better be special to me. And that's why partiality in the kingdom of heaven is such an offense. As our lives become filled with God's love, as God answers that prayer, as he makes our lives holy, as he sets us apart, and our lives increasingly begin to display the love and the holy love of God and the holiness of God. The burdens of our heart change. Our desires change. And the kingdom that we begin to care about is not our kingdom, my workplace, my job, my family. 
But the kingdom that we begin to care about is the kingdom of heaven. And that brings us to our third point for this morning. Beloved children desire the coming of their Father's kingdom. Beloved children desire the coming of their Father's kingdom. As you walk through this moral prayer, it becomes clear Jesus is teaching his disciples the true and new priorities of their life. A life of a beloved child of God. And he's showing them our gracious need. And our greatest need is God's holy life and love in us. We need to increasingly know God is our Heavenly Father. And as we do so, God shows us as he walks us through, as he sanctifies our life, and sometimes through difficult challenges, he begins to show us that his power and his authority and his rule, his kingdom over our lives is what we so desperately need. It's an expression of his holy love for us. It is his goodness and his grace that is necessary and that saves us and sets us free from sin. I've said this to my boys on occasion. Ain't going to happen. Ain't going to come into our house. It's over. Things that they learn in the street, things that they learn from their friends at school, things that they learn from their teacher. Hey, I get it. They're saying it. Leave it at the door. You know, our home belongs to Jesus. There's no place for that in this house. Yeah, of course I explain to them and walk them through and try and do so gently. But both end, they need to know that there is an authority, a power, and a control and a rule in our home. And it is there out of love for them to protect them and the house in which they live from the trash and sin of this world that only exists to tear their lives apart. And the longer the disciples walk with Christ, the more they begin to see how right he is and how freeing his authority is over their life and what a delight it is to do his command rather than a drudgery because left to our power, our authority, our rule, our kingdoms, we are dying in darkness. And when Jesus begins to proclaim the gospel, what does he proclaim? He says, repent, leave your kingdom. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or it's come close, or it's near to you. And how would the power and authority and rule of heaven come near to those disciples? Well, it was in Jesus. It was in the Messiah, the Son of God, and it was in his gospel. And what was the responsibility of those who heard it? They needed to leave their kingdoms and enter into Christ's kingdom. And what was the response? Well, a few people did. They repented. They left their nets. They followed Christ by faith. They came under his authority, his power, his rule. It's also known as following and obeying Jesus. And in this way, by faith in Christ, the kingdom of heaven extended to the hearts and lives of Jesus' disciples. But let me ask you a question. Did everybody in Israel repent and follow Jesus? Many resisted. Many rejected Christ's power and authority and rule because they wanted their kingdoms instead of the Lord's. And how about the disciples? Though they left everything to follow Jesus, was every aspect of their lives, boom, immediately submitted to his power and authority and rule. As you read the Gospels, you see Fairly frequently, whenever something came up that Jesus said that disagreed with their perception or idea or their expectation or desires, they resisted too and they pushed back. And chief among them, the biggest resistance came when Jesus said, I need to go to the cross. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be humiliated and I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, it ain't happening. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. The distinction is, as the disciples continued to walk by faith with Christ, they yielded and they repented and they submitted. And they grew in faith and love for Christ and his people. And they grew 
in an appreciation of the necessity of the cross, and they grew in love for people who were sinners. Brothers and sisters, as we grow in the Father's love and we grow in his holiness, our greatest desire is that his kingdom would rule all of us, not just part of us. And our greatest lament are there still areas of deep resistance to his love in our lives, our marriages, our homes, and our families. But our greatest hope, like the disciples, is we're able to go to a Savior who is capable of forgiving us and who willingly and lovingly changes us and does not abandon us, but instead brings us back and shows us the necessity of his cross in our life. This, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the kingdom of the cross. And it brings us to a place where our desire is no longer our will, but his will. And this brings us to our fourth and final point for this morning. Beloved children desire their father's will. Beloved children desire their father's will. It's worth noting as you go through this prayer, this model prayer, that the first half, like the Ten Commandments, is vertical. It starts with our relationship and our focus on the Lord. And then the second half moves to God's care for us. And the portion of the disciples' prayer, this first section that is vertical, if you will, closes with the words, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this, too, is a confession. This, too, is a priority. And this, too, is a petition, all ruled into one simple phrase. It acknowledges that we and the world desperately, desperately need not our will, but the Father's will. It's an acknowledgement and confession that God knows better than we do what is right for us, what is right for our marriages, what is right for our families, what is right for our church, and what is right for our world. How long do we have to spend shooting bombs at one another, fighting with one another, trashing immigrants, putting up walls, yada, 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 before we're willing to say, hey, Maybe we don't know what's best for our families, our nation, our world. Maybe God knows. But you see, we can't appreciate that when we're hating God. And that's Christ's gift, that as he grows us in the Father's beloved love, and as we mature in appreciation for who God is and what he's done for us, when we grow in appreciation that, yes, the cross is necessary, we begin to see that God's way is good. And for the disciples, it took them all the way till after the cross. For them to look back through the power of the Holy Spirit and begin to see, well, maybe God's way is better than our way. But this prayer is also an acknowledgement that our world, which rightfully belongs to God, is in fact in rebellion. It's resisting his will and instead, it's demanding that its will be done. But what a beloved child of God desires is the will of their Father, that one day, by the power of his kingdom, heaven and earth will be one, united by the cross in Christ. And Jesus summarizes this life and this attitude and this heart and this ministry throughout his Gospels, Jesus, and especially in the Gospel of John, he makes it clear, I am here to do the will of my Father. I don't do anything apart from the will of my Father. Everything that you see in my life is an expression of the Father's will. And he says that all the way to the cross. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's crucified, what is his prayer? Father, if this cup could be taken away from me, but not my will be done, but thy will be done. And brothers and sisters, that is the prayer that takes Jesus to the cross and brings his salvation and his righteousness and his life into ours. 
What is the proof of maturity? What is the proof of growth? What is the proof of participation in God's life and love? I delight to do your will. That's the psalmist. It's not a burden anymore. It's not a piano lesson. It's not I have to do this homework to pass this exam so that I can go to college. It's this is my joy and delight because my father is holy. He is good. He loves me perfectly and he is doing a good work in a way that I cannot do. If you have your Bibles, have a look at 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to give you the overview. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. This is Paul writing to Timothy, and he's talking about the order of the church. First, first priority of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Then he goes on to say, This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What's God's will? What's his desire? That his holy love would rule on his terms, not ours. And to do this, he sent his son to die on the cross and he gave everything. To do this, Christ came and gave his life and suffered humiliation and rejection. What have you suffered lately? What have I suffered lately? It helps put things in perspective. Yes, we get lonely. Yes, we get discouraged. Yes, we struggle. But when we put it in perspective, why? Why did God undergo all of these things? Why did he send his son? Because his will and his desire is that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so this is why we pray for kings. And this is why we pray for leaders. And this is why we pray for difficult people in our lives, our enemies. And we pray for them that they would come to repentance and faith in Christ. That they would know the love of God. Why? Because this is our Father's will. This is how he loves. And this is how we love too. And then you go on in 1 Timothy and he talks about the order of worship and how men are to lead. And he calls upon men to lift holy hands to the Lord in prayer. Men, your calling is to lead in love. How do we lead in love? Well, you're not leading in love and I'm not leading in love if we're not leading on our knees in prayer. And how do we grow in that area? Brothers and sisters, we do so by growing in the love of our Father. Can I have my final slide, please? This is our application as we walk through how do we grow and how do we pray like Jesus and how do we pray with Jesus? Let me exhort you by praying regularly. Daniel would pray three times a day. He did so because he was aware that he was serving God and he was living in a fallen world. And he had a very important job and Daniel had a lot of stuff to do. If you think you had a lot of stuff to do, you're not overseeing a province for a despotic and tyrannical dictator, okay? When you get it wrong, your head gets cut off. And so we see Daniel made a habit of praying three times a day. If Daniel prayed three times a day, why do we do less? Make it a priority to spend time in your Father's love. And as you do so, make it a priority as you start your prayer to spend time meditating on who God is and what he's done. When you listen to Ted and Kevin pray, I hope you realize they're praying through the word of God. When you walk through the psalmist and see how men of God pray, they begin fairly frequently with who God is and what he's done. And when they're really struggling and having a hard time, the length of going back on all the things that God has done for them gets longer and longer and longer because they're so pressed by the things of this world and the sin of this world, they so desperately need to have a clear vision of their Father's love for them. Brothers and sisters, 
It's a struggle to do so because our flesh says, take care of my needs right here, right now. My needs are more important. And what the Lord is saying to us is, no, my love is more important. My holiness is more important. So let me encourage you to start there. And then as you move from there, consider the areas in which God's will is being done in your life. How then can I follow his will and not my will? And to look to the Lord for the help that we need instead of walking in our fallen love to walk in his holy and good love, the holy and good love of a perfect father who gave his son to die for us. I would be remiss to say, if you do not know this father's love, then the call to you is the kingdom of heaven has come near to you today. You need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand through God's spirit and his word. And if we don't pray, we need to ask ourselves, do I really know this God? Is his life and love in my life? And if so, whether I'm saved or I'm not, it's a sign that I do need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because God is good and he is gracious, but he is holy too. And he has given you this time to repent, but this time won't last forever. Please know him and know how good this God is. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you have given us your Father's love. You have given us your love. Help us to grow in this. And may the prayer life of our homes, our families, and our church be a reflection, Lord Jesus, not of our kingdoms and not of our fallen desires, but instead, Lord Jesus, would it be a reflection of our Father's love, of his kingdom, and his will in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.